0: Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to church today. Before we jump into our teaching time this morning, I just want to let you know that another session of Christianity Explored is coming uh, to Faith Community Church after Easter as well. So if you're new to Faith Community Church, you're just checking some things out, maybe it's been a long time since you've been in church, or you just have questions, Christianity Explored is an opportunity for you to bring those questions uh, to some great leaders, uh, get good answers, thoughtful answers, And uh, that's beginning on April 20th. It's a seven-week course all about who Jesus is, what he's done, and why it matters. I also want to encourage you, if you're here this morning and you have friends or family members... Uh, that are kind of wrestling with faith, trying to think things through. If you have the opportunity to go with them, go with your friend to Christianity Explored. Okay, so my wife Darcy sat with a friend through the last session of Christianity Explored uh, and had a really, really great experience. And because, you know, they're already friends, they get to have all the follow up conversations and what about this and what about that uh, that comes with it. Now, if your family is like my family, you probably have. Uh, X number of evenings in a week that you can actually give up uh, and be away from family. So, this is my encouragement to you, Faith Community Church. If God ever opened the door for you to go with a friend of Christianity Explored, drop something else. Okay? Go to your missional community, your discipleship group, the, the campus ministry, you're part of whatever it is. Say, hey, I'm taking a seven week hiatus. You'll see me in a month and a half. And uh, even if you're a leader, Okay, just let them know uh, God has opened a door for me to go with a friend and they will not have a problem with that. Everybody, is, is it okay? And if they do have a friend, you tell Tim Porter and he will take care of it, okay? <laughs> Christianity Explored has led, uh, Tim's one of the facilitators of that, by the way, and that's how I that's how I can guarantee you if you have a friend join you or, or go on their own or if you go, uh, you're going to be respected and you're going to get some really thoughtful answers to your questions, okay? All right, well, we're continuing our teaching series, He is Greater, this morning, which is a walk through the New Testament book of Hebrews. And again, Hebrews was written to first century Jewish Christians who are wrestling with the cost of following Jesus or I should say the mounting cost of following Jesus and they're asking is this really worth it? Wouldn't it be better to go back to something that we knew and how could this really be the only way? So we're going to pick up where we left off last week. That's Hebrews chapter 2. If you are brand new to the Bible or you need to borrow a Bible from one of the chairs in front of you, we'll be on page 1002. We've already made it to the second page of Hebrews. So page 1002, if you would turn there with me. And uh, while you're looking for that, uh, just just a reminder of kind of where we're at in this letter and what's going on. In chapter 1, the author of Hebrews was lifting up before us the glory of the divine Son of God. And this is really important for you to keep in mind in what we're going to study today. The eternal creator God who made you and knows you and has a right to your trust has become one of us. That's what we're going to be reading about today. Scripture attributes to Jesus personal eternal pre-existence divine sonship. He's the creator. He's the sustainer of all things. He's the one that's acquired salvation for us. He's the king of the church. hes He has dominion over the whole world. He will judge the living and the dead. He's worshipped. Uh, he shares in God's glory. There are several times in scripture that, that it addresses Jesus by the name of God. And so this is not a marginal doctrine taught in just a few proof texts here and there throughout the Bible. This was not invented in the late section or third century this is at the heart of Christianity that the creator God who knows you and loves you and has a right to your trust has become one of us and especially in chapter 2 especially in what we're about to read in a minute the author of Hebrews goes to great pains to show us the full humanity of the son of man these are not two different people the son of God and the son of man these are two natures in the one person, Jesus. And we are wading into the heart of the heart of the heart of the the reality upon which the whole universe exists that God has become one of us. I was talking with a friend between services today and Hebrews is just hard to make practical because we're talking about stuff that is just like, okay, okay. But this is what is at the heart of reality, what we're talking about here. I also come this morning with an awareness of the news this week. So and I don't know if it was just me or if this week was just a uniquely awful week in, in the news, but I'm aware as we come today that there's a church gathered in Nashville for the first time right now as we're meeting here, meeting for the first time to grieve and to worship and to process every community's worst nightmare. I don't know if you've been paying any attention to the news out of uh, Juarez, Mexico, but just awful stuff down there this week. I'm just, I think I'm aware of it because we're sending a team of students to Juarez, Mexico this summer. Uh, and the, I think these caught my attention this week because they illustrate so clearly what we were talking about last week if you were here. Uh, we were created for honor and glory. Hebrews chapter 2 says. But that is not what we see. We We have fallen lower than angels, and all of creation has been plunged into evil. And we talked last week about how hopelessly simplistic modern accounts of evil are. And it was interesting this week to watch the news and to watch people bewildered and perplexed by what is happening. In our world, we can't like like we said last week, we can't even really use the word evil to talk about these things because that implores implies moral absolutes, and we don't really believe in those things. So this this week has just been for me like a masterclass in why we need to understand what is really happening in the world Uh, from from the scripture's perspective. I'll also just share briefly, on Wednesday I came across an article from the Washington Post called The Crisis in American Girlhood. So apparently the CDC just finished a research project called the Youth Risk Behavior Survey and this article had interview after interview with teenage girls and interview after interview with experts about a crisis in American girlhood and they're flummoxed. Here's a quote from one expert, she says, Uh, The CDC findings are distressing because they tell us that today's teens in many ways are in better physical health and more risk-averse than previous generations. We're raising the best-behaved generation of teenagers on record. They drive with seatbelts, they smoke less, they have less sex, they wear helmets, and yet they're in crisis. And uh, if you read read the article, there's just uh, this profound sense of aloneness. Uh, that I won't get into all the details of what, they, what they're what they experiencing, but they just kept saying, we wish people believed us. We wish that someone understood what we're experiencing day in and day out, and that they would believe us, and that we wouldn't be alone. And I just, you know, we've been saying that reading Hebrews is like opening the mail from another universe. It really is. And, and the, the message that it brings is, God has done something that you cannot begin to fathom. He does understand. And he knows you and he understands pain on a level that would absolutely boggle your mind. And you're not alone. So today in our reading, uh, we're going to be, it's just Hebrews uses image after image after image to tell us about what the son has done. So we're going to read about how he's become our captain who fights for us, our brother who's proud of us, our redeemer who takes hold of us, and our priest who stands beside us. Okay, So uh, let's, let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 2, starting in verse 10. Uh, this is what it says. For it was fitting that he, for, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Take a look at verse 10 with me, if you will. So Jesus, the Son, is our captain who fights for us. And it begins by saying that it was fitting that these things should happen. It was fitting. In other words, it was appropriate. What God has done in the Son accords with the way that things should be. It accords with righteousness. It's lawful. It's in line with God's character. It's just, righteous, and good. All the things that God has done in Jesus. And to, to underst- you, you need to understand this to make sense of everything that follows. All evil and death, everything that you've seen in the news this week was brought into the world by a man, by Adam, who uh, chose not to trust the word of God in the midst of paradise. Therefore, it, it, it is fitting that our redemption should come by a man who did choose to trust the word of God, knowing it would destroy him. Okay? All evil and death were brought on into the world by a man, Adam, who failed to trust the word of God in the midst of paradise. So it's fitting that only a man in the midst of tremendous suffering should choose to trust the word of God instead. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist... In bringing many, it says sons, but sons and daughters would be a better translation. In bringing many sons and daughters to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect by suffering. That it says founder there, but if you have a, if you ever look at a number of different translations, this is one of those places. Where it translates the word like six different ways, and that's there's a good sign that we're reading a uh, you know there's a Greek word here that doesn't have a great English equivalent. So some translations will say you know leader, source, pioneer, champion, author. I mean, the Greek word is archagos. Okay, archagos literally the arch leader of salvation, and the, and one of the best uh, I I'll say. The word that resonated most with me is that Jesus is the captain of our salvation. Jesus is the captain who has led the way. He's broken through. And Archagos is, is the, the, you know, the general on the battlefield that has his part of the battle in order. But he looks over and he sees you. And you are in full flight from the enemy. They're nipping at your heels. You're in retreat and you're about to die. And he leaves his part of the battle and he dives into the fray on your behalf. He puts himself between the enemy and yourself. And whatever happens, happens. But he jumps into the battle to save you. That's the picture that we're given here. Jesus is our captain who has leapt into battle on our behalf. And it says that he was also, he was made perfect by what he suffered. Now, how can Jesus be made perfect if he's God? Anybody ever wonder this? How can Jesus become anything if he is God? One of the fundamental attributes of God is that he doesn't change. Okay? God doesn't change and he cannot change, and Jesus, the divine son, shares in those attributes. Hebrews 13 8, same letter. Says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So what's all the becoming business? How did do, why does how does suffering make Jesus perfect if he's God? Well, it isn't talking about a moral or a character deficiency in the son that was improved by his suffering. This goes back to his fitness to be the captain of our salvation. So let's, let's do a thought experiment, okay? Let's pretend that there's an Old Testament priest named Bob who theoretically, you know, it's just that we're just doing an experiment. Theoretically, he is morally and spiritually perfect, Okay? Well, even though he's morally and spiritually perfect, Bob cannot do what Bob needs to do until he actually puts on the robes of the priest, okay? So sitting around his house, playing with his kids in his hoodie and his sweatpants doesn't change Bob's essential nature, right? He's still perfect Bob, but he dare not go to work that way. Does that make sense? Bob isn't perfect, for the thing for offering sacrifice until he goes through a certain consecration process and then he's fit to offer sacrifice on on behalf of people it's the same way with the son the son cannot redeem us from within his divine nature alone he had to put on our humanity to do what he was well, what needed to be done on our behalf. So uh, a priest, an Old Testament priest, to become perfect has to wash himself. He has to oil his hair and his beard. He has to put on certain undergarments. Then he puts on the robe and now he's perfect and he, he can go to work. Well, in the same way, the son put on a nature just like ours, He grew mentally and physically just as we do. He suffered in temptation just the way that we do. He suffered at the hands of people. And in all these things, he's preparing himself to be the perfect priest on our behalf, to become the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. He became one of us in every way except sin, and in so doing, made himself the perfect priest so that when he takes his place, At the right hand of God, our destiny is being fulfilled. There is a perfect man on the throne of God, and it's fitting. It accords with righteousness. It is good, it's beautiful, and it's right. And then verse 11 says, For he who makes us holy... And those being made holy, that, that's what sanctified means, just being made holy. So the one that makes us holy and those being made holy all have one source. This is, this is another place, that, this is the last time I'll do this to you today, but this is another place where if you read six different English translations, you'll get six different versions. Because the Greek, it literally just says they all are of one The word source isn't attached on there. And we English speakers don't talk that way. But this is what it's saying. He who made us holy and we who are being made holy all are of one. We share a common human nature. We share a common position before the Father. We share a common human ancestry and experience. We're of one. So, we should all go home now. We should just be done. You should, we should go home now and just think about that. That, God, that the creator God who made you, who knows you, who has a right to your, your trust, became one with us. All, all are one. And, and not just for a time not just for a season, the sun has become one of us forever. I mean, there, there could not be a greater statement about the dignity of humanity, about what we were really made for, about the destiny that awaits us than those facts right there. And we should just be done. But I have to preach, I have to finish, okay? But th- this is, this is an astounding reality. The sun. And his people are one. And then it goes on to say, and he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He's not ashamed of us. He's a brother who is proud of us. In all those, so in verses 12 and 13, Hebrews quotes three Old Testament scriptures. And the, you know, high level, the point is all the same. It's just highlighting the solidarity between Jesus and his brothers, and that he is proud of us. So verse 12 is from Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is a a famous psalm about the Messiah. It begins with that famous cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Psalm 22 is what Jesus was praying as he hung on the cross, and Uh, it lays out, if you read Psalm 22, it's written a thousand years before Christ, but it reads like an eyewitness account of the crucifixion, right down to the piercing of hands and feet and being surrounded by violent men and so forth. Well, about halfway through the psalm, it turns this corner and it begins to look out beyond the cross to when the Messiah beyond death will gather brothers and sisters from all the nations of the world and it says they'll sing together. It says the Messiah is beyond death will gather together brothers and sisters and here's how you'll know that the cross has been effective. They'll sing. So our worship is evidence that the cross has done what it was supposed to do and that darkness is doomed. Okay, so I imagine churches in Nashville this morning and in Juarez, Mexico, gathered around Christ in the presence of angels. Okay, we talked about that last week. Lifting their voices in praise and lament. And by their very existence, they declare that Jesus has won. And that he's going to continue winning. Verse 13 Makes a similar point. So Jesus is the one, even in the midst of death, who looks and says, I will trust God. Adam did not. I am going to do it. And then he says, behold, I and the children that God has given me. So everywhere in the New Testament, it's clear that Jesus' death on the cross was not just for himself, but it was for us. Okay, he's taken all of our sin and put it to death. We get all of his righteousness and we're united with Jesus in some real way in the Holy Spirit so that throughout the New Testament it says that we are present tense seated with Christ in the heavenly places. So here you see Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2 saying, I'll trust God where they couldn't and then I'm going to bring them with me. Behold, look, I am the children that God has given me. It's like he's presenting us with himself to the father and he's not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed of you. Now, don't raise your hand. But who has problems here today? Does anyone else have problems? Is anyone else a little embarrassed by the church? Or a lot embarrassed by the church? Is there anyone else who, you know, when you, when you think about the way that God looks at you, think he's, he has to be a little embarrassed. And here we read that the son is not ashamed to call you brother. Why? Because your very existence is evidence of his own victory over death and darkness. Has God given you new life in Jesus? Is there a point in your life where you uh, trusted in the cross of Jesus for forgiveness? Were you transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light? Have you been baptized in his name? Are you learning to walk in fellowship with the Holy Spirit and with his church? Do you think that that's nothing? Wherever you're at in the process, okay? Do you think that's nothing? Nothing. Because Jesus brings you to the Father and says, look what I'm doing. Look what I can do and what I have done. Jesus is not ashamed to call you sister. He's not ashamed to call you brother. He bled and died for you. And you, your existence, the existence of congregations like this, are an evidence of his victory over death. So he is our captain who leapt into the fray to save us. He's our brother that brings us along and is not ashamed of us. And now we see in verses 14, 15, and 16, he's the redeemer who also takes hold of us. I get that from verse 16. It says, it's, you know, it's not angels. Clearly it's not angels that the son came to help, but he helps the children of Abraham. It's just the children of Abraham. It's talking about all those who have trusted Christ, who are uh, learning to trust Jesus. And help, is it, it, it's, it'd probably be a bit stronger to say, it's not just that he helps us, it's saying he takes hold of us. Surely it's not angels that he takes hold of, but it's the church, it's you and I, that the son takes hold of. And his solidarity with us is not superficial, but he shares, it says, in our flesh and blood. So he's chosen to identify with us so completely that he knows about our weakness, he knows about pain, he knows about hunger, he's been sick, he's been lonely, he knows sorrow. In his final moments, he even knew despair. Most of all, he knows what death is. Our greatest enemy, Jesus knows better than we do. And it says that he did this, he bound himself to humanity for the purpose of going through death to destroy the power of death, which is, uh, verse 15 says, the devil. So there's this unbreakable chain uh, between sin and death. If you want to rule your own life, you're going to die. Now, we might expect the author to say that God is the one who wields the power of death, but instead we read that for a while, This power belongs to the devil. He was not created with that power. It's not inherent to his nature. But when he incited Adam to join his rebellion, he received not just authority over the world, but he received the power of death as well. So 1 John 5.19 says, the whole world is under the sway of the evil one. John 12.31 calls him the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the god, little g, of this age. And also calls him the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, who's now at work in the sons of disobedience. So it's just saying that in a court of law, Satan gets to say, everyone who wants to rule their own lives is mine. Legally mine. They're legally, that's what I'm like. They're acting in accord with my nature and they belong to me. And I'm going to kill them. Now, verse 15, and verse, I think it's verse 16 goes on to say that this fear of death is paralyzing to humanity. It, it's a fear of being given over to we don't know what that enslaves us. And verse 15 says that Jesus entered that for the purpose of setting us free. This is one of the few places, you'll almost never hear me say this ever again, okay? So you should write this down. This is one of the few places where the church agrees with Sigmund Freud. Sigmund Freud taught that people are deeply disturbed by death, deeply distorted by death, and deeply affected by the fear of death. He taught on the one hand, you know, we have a death wish. Because of our shame and guilt, we just want it to end. And on the other hand, we're terribly afraid of it. So we repress it. We pretend this is not going to happen to me. And we, try, we just try to live our lives as though death is never going to catch up with us. Here's a, another author named Leo Tolstoy explained this experience of the fear of death. He says, something strange began to happen to me at age 50. Anybody else around age 50? Okay, you're, um, yeah. you're, but you're, your spirit is about to bear witness, okay? Something happened to me, he says, at age 50. I had a wife who loved me and whom I loved I had a large estate without which much effort on my part increased. My name was respected. I enjoyed physical strength. And yet I could not live because of death. The question which brought me to the verge of suicide sought an answer without which one cannot live. Is there any meaning in life that my inevitable death does not destroy? Today or tomorrow, death will come to those I love and then to me. Soon, not only will I not exist, but eventually no one will exist who will remember anything I have ever written or done. Why go on? What is it all for? What does it all lead to? What difference will it make whether I do this thing rather than that thing or nothing at all? So I could give no rational meaning to any single action or even to my whole life. But what was so surprising was how we can fail to see this. For a time, it's possible to live life intoxicated with life, but as soon as one is sober, it is impossible to see that life in the face of death is a fraud and a stupid fraud. How often I've been told, oh, you cannot understand the meaning of life, so don't think about it, just live. But I can no longer do that. Now, I know that some will struggle with the very mention of a devil at this point, but if God exists... Uh, then why not a devil? And if there is a devil, wouldn't this be his number one weapon? Read the news. Wouldn't this be his primary means of driving people into despair? Is the fear of death. That something is waiting for you that you do not know. And here we read, the son shares in our flesh and blood for the express purpose of destroying him by destroying his power over death. So in the the cross of Jesus, he takes the sin that has you in its hold and puts it to death. So now Satan has no legal right over you. And then in his resurrection, he blows a hole through the back of death and bids you come, follow me. Here we go, through to the other side. It would not have been enough for Jesus the Son to die for you within his uh, divine nature. Let's just pretend you could kill God. You can't, but let's pretend. It would not have been enough for him to come and die for you as God. It also would not have been enough for him to come in our nature, but clothed in power and glory. He had to do both if we're to be free. To become one of us and to enter into death and blast a hole out the backside and to say, Follow me, and here we go. When it says that he's come to help us, what he's, he's saying, he's the Son has taken hold of his people, and is saying, "Let's go. I'm taking you through. I, I've got you." C.S. Lewis puts it this way: "The Son of God became a man to enable men to become sons of God." I've got you. Pew, let's go. And then last thing from the the, the text we just read. If all that weren't enough, then he continues to walk with us as a priest. So Jesus is a priest who knows the anguish of human experience. He knows the full force of temptation in a way that we never will. Only a person that has resisted to the very bitter end can fathom what Christ endured. But he has become a merciful and faithful high priest, verse 17. Now, again, wasn't he merciful and faithful before? Yes, but he could not be your priest. Only a man can undo what men have done. And for that reason, Jesus became one of us. Now, uh, last week, a lot of you, you know, were here in the second service last week. So we did, you know, we had sermon And then we sang a song, and then Prince comes up and gives you Sermon 2.0. Does anyone remember that from last week? Okay, thank you five people who remember that. So this is what happens. Sermon writing is a long process, and sometimes it takes a long time for things to land even on the preacher, especially Hebrews, okay? So we're singing last week, last song of the last service, and it all comes together in my mind. Oh, this is what this is actually about. So I got up, and then I... Had to give you the 2.0. Okay, so then I went home, and I said, Darcy, because she was in the first service, I said, Darcy, I think I get it. And then I explained it to her. And she says, Tim, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. <laughs> so what does a good husband do? Just keep talking. Just, just kidding. She'll get it. She'll get it. We crawled into bed Sunday night. And she, she said, Tim, I still don't understand what you're trying to say. So... So here, here's here's my my second or third or tenth attempt, okay? I'm just trying to wrap my head around if if I really understood what we're learning about the Son of Man, how would that affect me? How would that change me? And there are two things, and two things, by the way, that I don't think anything but the gospel can hold together. One is that if you understood what God has done in the Son of Man in restoring you to your rightful place in the universe, it would come with a tremendous sense of spiritual authority. To know that when I pray, in some real sense, I'm seated with Christ at the right hand of the Father. He hears me when I pray. He cares about me. He's paying attention to my life. He knows what I want. He knows what I'm wrestling with. And he's done all this. There's nothing that I'm going to experience that he hasn't experienced. There's nothing I'm going to want. You know, he's fully entered into my experience. So when I see him and what he's become, there should be a sense in your hearts of, oh my goodness, behold the authority. Returning to my rightful place. Wow! And at the same time, there should be a, a, a deep and a profound sense of humility towards your neighbor. Uh, this now I really butchered this in the first service, so this is like my tenth time. Just, but if if you really believe this, I don't think that there's anything your neighbor will experience or could experience or desire or participate in that you could not also empathize with okay the the way that your neighbor goes about it it may strike you as very strange the things people are doing around you may strike you as very strange say boy i've never wanted to do that i've never wanted to participate in that i've never had a desire like that i don't understand this but the root issues are always the same you absolutely know what it is to want something and know that it would offend god absolutely you do you absolutely know what it is to be driven along by desires. You have to. And so for, for a person who sees what the son has done in becoming one of his, I don't know how you look at your neighbor and say, boy, you are weird. What is wrong with you? But to look at your neighbor and say, there is, there is nothing you experienced that I have not experienced. And I know what it is to want these things, to feel these things. And I know the one who entered into my experience to save me. So those two things, just this tremendous sense of walking in what God has called me to be and at the same time to see my neighbor and say, I know, I know exactly what you're feeling. I don't, I don't think anything but the gospel holds those two things together. If you leave today, you go home and you say, I have no idea what Prince was talking about today. You're in, you're in great company. You are in great company. Call my wife. She'd love to talk with you about it. Right? Let me uh, let me pray for us though, as as we prepare to leave today. Our Father in heaven, I need you to teach now what uh, what I wouldn't know how. I ask that you would help us to see the son to help us see what he's become and what you're making us to be God would you give to us to faith community church a profound sense of our place in the universe that our worship our existence our love our communion with you our fellowship with each other is supernatural you are working out your own purpose in the world through us I ask at the same time that you would make us profoundly humble before our neighbors. Help us to see in them what you must have seen in us. Teach us how, God. Teach us your way, O Lord, and we will walk in your truth. This morning we join our voices with tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people in pleading with you for Nashville and its churches. Asking that you would fill its pastors and its people with great wisdom that they would have an experience of your comfort and nearness today father would you work to redeem the events of the past week for that city and bring many sons to glory through it we ask this together in jesus name everyone said amen Amen. let's stand and sing